Welcome to the Bradenville Church of Christ podcast. We are a family of believers striving to be the first century church in the 21st century. We're located at 285 Church Street in Bradenville, Missouri. Please join us for Bible study Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. with worship to follow at 11 a.m. Wednesday night Bible study is at 7 p.m. Now, please enjoy our lesson. This is the day that um, the, the whole world of Christendom is focused on the tomb. The resurrection of Jesus. And we want to talk a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus today in light of what our, our main theme for this year has been so far, in light of building a, a, a habit of personal evangelism, a habit of sharing the gospel with others. So far, what we've talked about is the essence of the gospel. So we've talked about the resurrection, but we're going to go into the resurrection in more, a little more depth today than what we did the last time. We've talked about uh, the 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 real essence of a habit, and you recall as we talked about this, the habit is the convergence of knowledge, of skill, and of desire. And so when we talked about building uh, evangelical knowledge, we looked at the basics of the gospel, but we also looked at some tools that can help us share the gospel with others. And so we've got various tools in our toolbox that we can use if somebody asks a question about about Jesus or if somebody's interested in a Bible study we've got those tools ready that we can that we can sit down remember the basic principles that we learn from Jesus remember the first one is defer don't debate we don't debate the scriptures we simply look at the scriptures and we take them for what they say show don't tell that we show the Scriptures, that we look to the Scriptures. One of the things that, that we talked about during that is really trying to get out of our vocabulary, I believe or I feel. You may not be interested in what I believe or I feel, but you can know what the Scriptures say. And we also talked about planting and don't picking. Don't pick. Don't be uh, prejudiced in the, in the way we present the Gospel and who we present the Gospel to. <clears throat> we then moved into skill. And we talked about some basic skills in sharing the gospel. We talked about some things that we can do to be, to be more comfortable sharing the gospel with others. And then the last couple of weeks we've been talking about desire, the want to, the why. Why would I share the gospel with others? As we tra transition out of that, that habit discussion, we're going to look at, at just some various uh, different aspects of, of evangelism or sharing the gospel with other people that can be helpful for us. And sometimes it's helpful to be able to answer specific questions. So what we want to look at today is, what does the resurrection mean to you? If you're a Christian today, what does the resurrection mean to you? What significance does it have in your salvation and in your Christian life? And what does, what does the resurrection mean to the non-believer? We may have somebody sometimes say, prove that the resurrection took place. Can you prove that to me? That's what we want to talk about today. We want to look at six proofs that the resurrection is real, that it's a real historical fact. <clears throat> but to begin with, let's just remember what took place there on that first day of the week following the Passover. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, <clears throat> I want to read first here the, the story of the resurrection. This is one story. Remember, there's four Gospels. Each one of them has, has a, an aspect of the resurrection in them. We're going to look at Matthew just quickly this morning. But I want you to listen to some of the basic, the basic um, facts, the basic elements of the story of the resurrection. Now, after the Sabbath, this is Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And indeed, he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. Notice some basic characteristics of the story. First off, you have any time that God acts, any time there's, there's an event going on in which, in which God wants to manifest his, his glory, you see angels involved typically. And here you see, you remember in the, in the birth of Jesus, how, and even in the conception of Jesus, how integral angels were in the story. Here we see uh, these men clothed like lightning. Can you, can you imagine what, this, what, what these people would look like, these, these men would look like? Uh, Matthew records here that there was an, an angel. We see um, in other versions there was two of them came down there, one of them being the speaker here. But he interacts with not only the women, but he interacts with the guards. And so now we're starting to see that there's evidence here. There's, there's not just people who might be biased towards the story of the resurrection, but we see there are other people who might be a little more impartial in the witnessing of the resurrection. And he, he rolls back the stone, and he allows them to see into the tomb, and the tomb is empty. And they go back. He tells them to go back and tell the disciples. And now we begin to see the story of the resurrection being told. That's the story that we want to focus on today, we want to think about and as I said, what does the resurrection mean to, to you and I as a believer? It's important for us, first off, to appreciate the significance of Jesus' resurrection. You recall in Luke chapter 24, Jesus has now been raised from the dead, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And he says these words in Luke chapter 24, beginning verse 46. He said, Thus it was written, thus it is written, excuse me, and thus it was necessary. Whatever he's going to say next was foretold by the prophets, it was written about in the prophets, and it was necessary that it had to happen. Why was it necessary? We'll see in just a second. But he says, thus is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. Jesus here himself said that the resurrection was necessary, that it had to take place. But you notice that there's an aspect of this story that's not unique to, to Jesus. Everybody who's drawn breath in this life, save Enoch and Elijah, has died, right? Now, we don't want to undermine or, or to, to discount the death of Jesus, but there's nothing unique simply from the fact that Jesus died. And there's nothing unique from the fact that he was buried because everybody who's drawn a breath is going to die. And most people are going to be buried. But what we see in this story, the unique aspect of the story of Jesus is the resurrection. Now some people say, well, there were other people who were resurrected. We can see in the scriptures that other people were raised from the dead. Jesus is the only one, the only person that we have a record of, who was raised from the dead never to die again. So we begin to see the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection shows his, God's authority over not just life, but death and Hades. 
In Acts chapter 2, as Peter and the other apostles stood up to preach, uh, they, you might recall from that story in Acts 2, the, the sound of the, 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 the apostles are together in an upper room. They're, they're together there in one place, and there's the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it draws the attention of all around there. There's flames of, that look like tongues of flame come and set upon their heads, and they begin to speak in tongues or in languages that they had never learned before. And the crowd, as it comes around, they hear these men speaking, and they, you recall, there's, there's, always, some, there's always some of these in the group. There's always the heckler or the, or the doubter, right? They say, well, those guys are just drunk. And Peter stands up with, the, with the, the other leaven there, and he proclaims to them that this is not drunkenness, this is not the, the results of intoxication, but this is the effect of the Holy Spirit. He quotes from Joel when he talks about the, uh, the, that it shall come to pass in the last days, said God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. He makes this, this connection between the prophecy of the Old Testament and what they are seeing, and from that passage he begins to preach the message of Jesus. He says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Now what's interesting here, he's talking to people who would have known what he was talking about. They had seen Jesus. They had seen the miracles that he performed. So this wasn't something that was new to them, that was astonishing to them. They had seen this. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. But listen to verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. And then he goes on to quote from David. But you notice what he said there? He said it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death. What did the resurrection of Jesus do? One thing it did was it showed to the world and it showed to even to Satan that God has authority and He has power even in the realm of death, even in Hades. God can reach in there and pluck out His own. And so Jesus' death, and particularly His resurrection, shows to us the power of God. Gives us hope and gives us encouragement if we go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, Paul states that hope and he shows and he proves that there is hope in the resurrection of Jesus. And it gives, it gives power to our faith. 1 Corinthians 15 is, is Paul's declaration of the gospel. He begins in 15 verse 1 saying, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also preached, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried. And if that was the end of the story, that would not be a very, more, very fantastic story, would it? Because that's the story of you and me, right? But notice what He says next. And that he was that he rose again from the again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and by the twelve, and that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. And after that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then last of all he was seen by me also, as one as by one born out of due time. Paul says the gospel, the essence of the gospel is this: the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. 
that he rose from the grave on the third day, that he was seen by people who are, many of them still alive today. If you wanted to ask them, if you wanted to find these people and say, did you see Jesus at the resurrection? They could testify to his, his life. But we go on down to verse 12 because there's a problem going on in Corinth. There's a struggle going on in the church. And part of it is that they're saying there is no resurrection. Same thing happens today. People say there is no resurrection. Now what's fascinating to me is this is within just a couple of decades of the resurrection of Jesus. And this is already starting to take place in the church. You see how fantastic the, the story of the resurrection is. Some people would choose not to believe it. They would say, well, it, it, it can't be true. Verse 12, Now if Christ has preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. Basically what he's saying here is, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there is no resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, then what we are preaching is a lie. Now remember that. Put a, put a pin in that, because we're going to come back to that in a little bit. If the resurrection didn't happen then the apostles are preaching and teaching and practicing and living a lie. And he's going to make it even personal to the Corinthians. Look at verse 17. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. These people who believed that they had, in obeying the gospel, they had been washed of their sins, they had been cleansed, they had been made a part of the family of God. Paul says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that's a joke. That's futility. And the life that you're living is a futile life. It's a worthless life. It's, a, it's, a, it's worse than worthless. It's, it's a discouragement, right? Because you're living a lie. But, verse 20, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So we begin to see then that Jesus' resurrection gives purpose to our faith. It shows victory over death. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 55. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Paul here has, has made the point that the resurrection shows God's authority, his, God's overwhelming victory over death. And one more, one more um, piece of information that we need to, to add in here regarding the significance of the resurrection and this is found in a couple places, but Romans chapter 1 is one of those places that speaks to the fact that the resurrection of Jesus testified to the fact that He is the Son of God. Listen to Romans chapter 1 verse 4. Uh, actually, back up to verse 3. Concerning His Son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Now, Jesus' resurrection didn't make Him the Son of God, but Jesus' resurrection declared to the world that He is the Son of God. And so we see here the significance of Jesus' resurrection is profound. It gives power and strength and purpose to our faith. It gives a, a great victory to us and to the world, a testimony of God's victory and His authority. And it establishes Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Now, what about, what about to me as an individual believer, though? I mean, we, we've seen here that, that Jesus', Jesus resurrection gives purpose to, to my faith. But what in particular does Jesus' resurrection do in 
in my salvation? How does, how does Jesus' resurrection play into my, to my being a part of the family of God? And from Romans 1, let's turn over just a couple chapters to Romans 6, where we see the resurrection in particular playing a role in what a Christian does to become a Christian, what a person does to become a Christian. In Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, Or do you not know that of many of us that as many as of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So picture picture baptism. A person who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. They've they've confessed that faith before mankind. They're willing to turn away from their sins and repentance. And they've said, you know what, I want to obey the command of Jesus to be baptized. Paul says that baptism is a joining in or a, a participation in the death of Jesus, okay? Let me ask you a question. You take somebody and you put them underwater and you leave them there. What's that called? That's a drowning, right? And Jesus didn't drown in the grave. He didn't stay in the tomb. He was resurrected. He was brought back up. David would say that that God would not allow His Holy One to see corruption. And Jesus was raised back up. So what happens to a believer? What happens to a person when they are plunged into that water and they rise up again? Well, Paul tells us, For if we have been united in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as Jesus rose from the grave, when we come up out of that watery grave of baptism, we're brought up in the newness of life. Praise God for that. You ever thought about when you obeyed the gospel, when you were baptized, that that? The power of that is represented in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus was risen to die no more, remember, we, told, we, we, we made this point earlier, He's the only one to have ever been resurrected to never die again. Just as He was raised up to newness of life, we are raised up to live a new life. And we don't have to die again. That doesn't mean that we might not see the grave in this life, but we never have to be separated from God spiritually ever again. Christian, that's what the power of the resurrection means to you. That's what it means in your life. That's what it means in your spiritual journey toward heaven. It gives power to the obedience to the gospel. Peter would reflect this over in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. As he's talking about the flood, and he's speaking about how, how Noah and his family were saved through water, he said there is an anti-type that saves us, baptism. Not the putting away the filth of the flesh. This wasn't a ceremonial washing of the body. But it's an answer, or some versions say a plea to God from a pure conscience. And he ends that verse, by or through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter and Paul both agree on the fact that the resurrection of Jesus gives power and purpose, particularly to our obedience and baptism. Isn't that wonderful? To know that God, in in sending His Son to the cross, was thinking about how you and I could be raised up as well. And He put this in place. 
so that we could. And so we talked about this in verses, we already read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20, or we've, we've read through it, that Jesus' resurrection gives power to my faith. It gives power and purpose to what I practice on a daily basis. Without the resurrection of Jesus, Christian, your life would be discouraging. And that's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians. It would be a discouragement because it's living a lie. It's living for something that has no reward. And yet the resurrection gives purpose to your life. It gives purpose to your faith. It gives purpose to the decisions that you make on a daily basis to be more like Jesus. So people see that and they say, you live differently than, than the world does. You, there's something about you that's different. I want to know more about that. That's what, that's what we've been talking about over the last year. How do, we, how do we share that good news with other people? And in particular, how do we share the good news of the resurrection? Because that can be a, a stumbling block to people, right? Anything that is miraculous can be a stumbling block to people who can't see it with their own eyes and can't, have never seen it before. You know what, though? I've never seen George Washington. I never laid eyes on George Washington. I've seen paintings of him. I've seen representations of him. I've heard stories about him. But I never saw him. But I still believe he exists, right? We can believe in things if there's evidence for it. And so what would we use as evidence? What would we use to show a person the resurrection of Jesus, even if they couldn't see it with their own eyes? How would we represent that to a person? And so I've got six items here. These, these aren't all that there, there are, but these are six that I would present to you as being evidence that Jesus' resurrection really happened. And if, you, if you're going to have somebody raised from the dead, well, where would you start to prove that they were raised from the dead? The first thing you've got to prove is that they actually lived in the first place, right? That they actually had a life that then could be ended and then could be raised back again. And so we think about the, the evidence of the life of Jesus. And first off, we've got the Scriptures, right? We've got the testimony of the, of the apostles, the fact that they saw Jesus. Matter of fact, if you go over to 1 John chapter 1, and you read there John's beginning of his epistle. He talks about the things that which we have seen, which we have heard, which we have handled with our hands. Uh, one time, uh, uh, a, a preacher who's passed away now, Richard England, he, uh, he wrote a letter to a friend of his who was on, I believe he was on the Supreme Court in the state of Tennessee. And he wrote him a letter. He said, if a person were to give testimony written testimony, and they died, would that testimony still be access, uh, admissible in court? And he went through a bunch of different questions, and, and the judge answered all those questions. And basically what he was saying was, if we were to take the testimony of the apostles, even though they've been dead for 2,000 years, is their testimony void because of time, or because of space, or because of the fact they're dead? The testimony doesn't change. People who have seen and handled and heard something are still as good of a witness today as they were 2,000 years ago. But what about, what about the person who says, well, the Bible, the Bible as a whole was made up. The Bible as a whole was just a, is, is a figment of man's imagination. People got together and they wrote the Bible and they put it together and they created the story of Jesus around a fictitious character who never really exists. Well, we can look to extra-biblical evidence to see that Jesus really was a, a person in history uh, there, you can you can look at at 
at artwork from that time period. You can look at other things from that time, uh, you know, just basic writings from that time period. And I'll just give you a couple examples here. I, I wrote these down. Actually, that's why my bulletin is different than yours because I had to put these on the back because I couldn't memorize them. Um, many of you have probably heard of Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a, a Jewish historian that wrote in the late first century into the, the early second century. So he, was, he would have been um, contemporary with the apostles. But he, he, writes about, uh, he writes about Jesus in one of his books. This is book chapter 18, chapter 3, uh, book 18, chapter 3 of his Antiquities. He said, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, as the at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named for him are not extinct, to the, at this day. Now some people look at that and they say, well, that may have been something that somebody inserted in there. Maybe some Christians got a hold of Josephus' writings and they put that in there to make it sound favorable to Jesus. Historians and scholars have looked at this and they said, this is, this is Josephus' writings. And so you see a man who was not a Christian. He wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he, he saw the admirable characteristics of Jesus and he testified to them. Not only to the life of Jesus, but you notice he testified to the death of Jesus, which we'll talk about in just a second, and to the resurrection of Jesus. And he said there are people who still believe that and they're in existence today. So in the time of Josephus, you could go and you could talk to people who were believers in Jesus. And some of them have, had been in the presence of Jesus whenever he was alive after his resurrection. But he was a Jew. What about people who were outside that, of that religious sphere? If you throw Jewish Christian sphere together. If you put that, what about somebody who was, was outside of that sphere, maybe even hostile to Christ? This is Tacitus in his book, The Annals, book 15, chapter 44. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report. Now, he's talking about what Nero did to Christians. Nero fastened the guilt. This is the, about the burning of Rome and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had, a, had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Listen to how he writes about Christianity. He calls it a superstition. He calls it hideous and evil. This man is not favorable towards Christians. But he said they were a follower of a man he referred to as Christus who was put to death during the reign, during the time of Pontius Pilate. So you see this testimony of the real-life existence of Jesus Christ. Now, think about just since that time how much impact Jesus' life has had on the world. How do we measure time today? Think about the impact that He had on the calendar, right? B.C., before Christ. A.D., Anno Domino, the year of our Lord. We measure time by the birth of Jesus. You think about the, the impact that, that Christianity and the followers of Jesus have had on the world and on our country. And, and it 
the, the most staunch critic of Christianity has a hard time proving that Jesus never existed. So the first evidence of the resurrection is the fact that Jesus lived. Now, she says, by itself, that doesn't prove the resurrection, right? Well, what about the fact that Jesus died? Now, most reasonable people would say, well, if a man was alive, it's reasonable to think that he died, right? Because that's what happens to everybody. And yet we've seen in the testimony here from the Scriptures and also from these external writers that they, they evidenced the fact that Jesus died. They talked about when He died and who was ruling when He died and by whose hands He was put to death. And so the, the evidence of Jesus' death is both evidenced in the Scriptures, but it's also shown in these external writings. And so the second fact that points us toward the resurrection is the fact that Jesus did live and He did die. But we also see the fact that his tomb was found empty. Now, we could go to the Scriptures, and we've read over Matthew chapter 28, the evidence of that. But turn back to Matthew chapter 28 again. I want to show you something else that we see here. The fact that Jesus' tomb was empty was not just, was not just witnessed by the disciples. It wasn't just witnessed by people favorable to Jesus. You remember the guards saw the angels. We talked about that already, right? And they were fearful. Those guards didn't just keep their mouth shut. They didn't just go home and pretend like it didn't happen and never talk about it again. Matthew chapter 28, verse 11. Now while they, this is the women, while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them... His disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. You know what you call that? It's called a cover-up, right? The story, the guards come to the elders and the chief priests. They tell them the story. You know what they could have done? If Jesus hadn't really been resurrected, you know what they could have done? They could have made a search. And they could have found the body. And they could have habeas corpus, right? They could have exposed the body. They could have brought it to bear on the matter. And they could have ended the whole discussion. And yet they knew that the tomb was empty. And that the body was not there because the disciples had stolen it. And yet they bribed the guards and they said, Go out and tell people. If anybody asks you what happened to the body, just tell them, Well, his disciples came by night and they stole it. Well, what about evidence? Well, we don't need to provide evidence. We're the Jewish leaders, right? And what's interesting is Matthew says that that story was reported among the Jews even till the time of his writing, which Matthew probably wrote this in the mid-50s A.D., maybe even somewhere in there. I want to read you something. This is actually from the, about the turn of the century. This would have been written probably in the early 100s. This is a Justin Martyr. Some of you may have heard that name before. He was speaking, he, he, he writes this dialogue with Trypho, who was a, a Jewish uh, scholar who was wanting to learn more about Justin's belief in Jesus. And Justin writes this in his conversation. He said, he said yet you not only have, been, have not repented, he's talking to Trypho here, after you learn that he rose from the dead, but as I said before, you have sent chosen and ordained men throughout all the world to proclaim that a godless and lawless heresy had sprung up 
from one Jesus, a Galilean deceiver whom we crucified, but his disciples stolen by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Moreover, you accuse him of having taught those godless, lawless, and unholy doctrines which you mentioned to the condemnation of those who confess him to be Christ and a teacher from and son of God. This is what, this is what was being spread by the Jewish leaders. He was, a, he was a godless and unholy teacher, and we put him to death, and his disciples stole the body. Where did they get that story? Well, Matthew tells us where they got the story, right? And we see evidence here that the tomb was empty. And some people say, well, that's not very, that's not very much evidence. That's not very substantial. Let me, let me tell you another piece of evidence, though, that would that I think is probably the most profound evidence here in these last two points. Remember what Peter stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost? He preached a crucified and risen Savior. This was the message of the apostles from the very beginning when they went out and preached the gospel. Remember, Jesus had told them, Thus it is written, thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins be preached in His name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses. He told the apostles that. And He told them to go and preach that message. And so they followed His command. On the day of Pentecost, they stood up and they preached the crucified and risen Savior. When Peter and John are walking in, the, in Solomon's temple, in the, in the temple porch in Acts chapter 3, you know what they're preaching? the crucified and risen Savior. And you go all through the book of Acts and you see people preaching the crucified and risen Savior. You come to Paul. Now Paul and Barnabas are called by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 13. And they go out preaching. And you know what they preach? The crucified and risen Savior. They preach the message of resurrection. I'll give you one example of this in Acts chapter 17. William read this for us earlier. Paul is on Mars Hill. He's, 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 he's preaching to the, the men of the Areopagus. And he, he begins by saying, you know, I, he said, well, I was walking through your city here. I was walking through Athens. I perceive that you're, you're a very, uh, the King James says, superstitious. You're a very religious people. You, you, have got, you have idols to every God that, that's imaginable. And just in case you miss somebody, I've noticed that you have a God, you have a, a, a statue or an idol to the unknown God. He said, that unknown God I'm going to declare to you. And he goes on to preach about a God who doesn't need to be served by man. He doesn't need man's hands to serve him because he's the creator of the universe. He made all man out of one flesh and blood. And he sets the bounds and the times for their existence. That's a whole other story in and of itself, and that's a whole other lesson for another day. But he gets down to the meat of the matter, because that would be just a good story if there wasn't a point to it. And he gets to the point um, in verse uh, 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because he is appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all this by raising him from the dead. There's another point you can plug in back in the significance of the resurrection of Jesus, right? 
it points to the judgment of God. And he said God's going to, he, he said a day when he's going to judge all mankind. And he's proven it. He's, he's, he's put his verifiable stamp on it because he raised this man from the dead. That was the preaching of the, of the apostles. Now let me ask you a question. How long can you preach a lie? How long can you substantiate a lie? You know, if it's just one simple lie, if it was just one lie, you might be able to do it for a while. But you know what happens with lies? Hopefully you've never experienced this, and I've been told this is the case. Usually when you tell a lie, what do you got to do to cover that lie? lie. You've got to tell another lie, right? And then, before long, the web of lies gets so complicated that you can't keep it straight. And that's just one person. Try to do that among 12. Try to do that among... 24. Try to do that among 120. Try to do that among 5,000 or 3,000 as believe the, the, the obey the gospel on the day of Pentecost and then spread to 5,000. Try to do that amongst a whole religion to perpetuate and maintain a lie. And yet that, that is what would have had to happen if the resurrection of Jesus were not true. Now some would say, well, that, that can happen because we can look at the world and we can see millions of people following and believing lies, right? You look at the false religions of the world and people by the millions follow those stories. But what about dying for a lie? How many of you would die for a lie? You knew that what you're saying was false, and yet you're willing to be so obstinate in that lie that you're going to suffer for it. And not just, I mean, not just die in a casual way, but to die in a harsh way. That's what we see the apostles doing. Think about Stephen. Stephen was stoned because he preached Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have in, in, his, in his sermon that he preached that got him stoned, we don't have him specifically mentioning the resurrection. But we know at some point in time he would have had to got to the resurrection. And yet they took him outside and they threw big rocks at him until he died. James had his head cut off. We know all the apostles except for John died in some type of unnatural death in a very painful way. And John, by, by historical accounts, was boiled in oil but survived. And once you, once you survived the, the, uh, the death sentence in Rome, you couldn't be executed again, so he was allowed to live his life out. Could you imagine doing that for a lie? Could you imagine what all that you would have to put up with for a lie? That's what we see the disciples doing, though. They lived lives and they died in horrendous matters because they believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, Jesus died. There was an empty tomb that was evidenced. His followers preached that message of the resurrection, and they died for that message. And the final point that I would make is this, and this is one that maybe we don't, we don't fully comprehend, maybe we don't always appreciate. The Bible testifies to the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. For thousands of years, matter of fact, from the beginning of its writings, from the time that the Bible, particularly the New Testament, was first being compiled and put together in a book. You know, this is really not one book. This is a collection of books. And, and you recall at the beginning of our, of our worship time, we talked about the fact there are 27 books in the New Testament. 
when those books were beginning to be compiled, even from that time, there were critics who were trying to tear it down. They were trying to destroy the Bible. One of the things the critics have never been able to undermine is the historical accuracy of the Bible. When you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, even when you read through the epistles, when you see something that's referenced to a date or a person or a place, it's never been shown to be inaccurate. There are times when people question facts of the Bible, but as archaeology and as, as the study of, of history continues, these just continue to be proven, continue to be shown to be true. And so if you had a book who was, was shown to be accurate in all these other facts of history, would it make sense that it would be accurate in the story of the resurrection? The resurrection is a fact of history. But if it was just a historical fact, it wouldn't be any different than George Washington, right? It would just be the story of, of something great that happened and maybe had an influence on our, on our life today. But the story of the resurrection has influence on you for eternity because the story of the resurrection is the story of your salvation. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor over the dark domain and he lives forever with his saints to reign. Are you one of the saints of Jesus Christ? Are you one of the followers of Jesus? That's what the resurrection means to us today. Have we obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God with all your heart? Are you willing to confess the name of Jesus before men? Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father which is in heaven. You know how Jesus is able to do that? Because he was risen from the dead and he sits at the right hand of the Father now. And there will be a day when every knee will bow before Jesus. And yet Jesus will only confess those who have confessed him. I knew him. I didn't know him. Have you done that? Have you obeyed the gospel in baptism? Remember, we talked about the fact that baptism is that participation in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus where we take our old man of sin and we bury him in the grave and we rise up a new creature being freed from the bondage of sin. Have you done that? If you haven't, I want to encourage you to do that today. Please don't leave here today apart from the body of Christ. Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. For more information about our church family, please visit our Bradleyville Church of Christ Facebook page. We hope to see you soon. Till then, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We hope you have a good day.